Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Today's athlete is an individual corporation. Their job is not to advocate specifically for black people. It's to bridge the peace. It's to make sure everybody gets along, to have LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony and Chris Paul and Dwayne Wade all stand up there and advocate for black people, but also advocate for peace. Very, mm-hmm. very different dynamic than, than the Ali attitude of, I'm here for my people. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This is our last podcast of 2017, and I could not imagine a better guest. We are talking to ESPN's Howard Bryant about his new book. It doesn't come out till next year, but it is so in tune with the politics of this show that I can promise you this will be the first of several interviews we do with Howard about this book. His book is called The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. Also, I've got a 2017 year in review I'm going to read out to y'all, and I've got Just Stand Up, Just Sit Your Ass Down, i got a very special Colin Kaepernick watch, and of course, a big shout out to everybody who made the show what it was in 2017, which I'm going to do at the end. Don't forget you can support this show on Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod to make sure we can keep doing this show deep into 2018. But first, Howard Bryant. So, Howard, one of the ways that you start this book, The Heritage, is by just putting it out there uh, for the reader that for black athletes historically, sports has always been more than just sports. Can you speak a little bit about what you mean about that? Because that, to me, is just like the thesis for the entire book. Yeah, I think that the number one thing when I started to conceptualize this project was taking on this notion of stick to sports. It's ahistorical. It's completely inaccurate. And I thought it was important to just take that head on as a premise and it's not there's no mystery to it. I didn't want there I didn't want it to be some sort of revelation as you get closer to Trayvon Martin or Ferguson or or anything post 9-11. It was simply that if you're going to view the black athlete in his place or in their place for men and women accurately, you have to remember that politics was always at the center of who they were, of their identity for several, several reasons. But this is nothing new. And I, I think that's the thing that's been 
that that really sort of informed the decision to even do this book in the first place was this this sort of ahistorical notion that that black athletes are suddenly getting involved politically and they're injecting their politics into sports when it's always been that way. And there's always been, as the title of the book says, this heritage of the political black black athlete. But you're an interesting person to write this book because, you know, you started your sports writing career um, over 20 years ago. And was there a time, though, when you started writing that you thought to yourself, was there ever a time where you thought to yourself, wow, the heritage is dead? I mean, you point out in your book that 1995 New York Magazine cover, I think New York Times Magazine cover, like, does sports even matter anymore? Like, And I think a lot of folks would have looked at the 1990s, the Jordan era, and thought to themselves, yeah, that's a relic. That's, you know, that's past history. That's the Victriola that doesn't exist anymore. Like when you were starting writing and you were a political person coming out of college, was your perspective that this was now dead, dustbin of history? Well, I think my perspective was like anybody who was born, and I'm an 80s kid, and so when you're an 80s kid, you were you're born into in into conservatism. You're you're born into firing air traffic controllers and unions being on the run and and reverse discrimination and you know the the remnants of the of the 78 Baki case and and all of those different you know the entire Reagan revolution that was us in in you know growing up and going through high school and then entering college as well i remember being in in Philly at Temple University after in the 88 during the 88 campaign which was my first the first presidential campaign i voted in and just feeling completely obliterated that the country that you know that we thought we believe we belonged to just didn't exist. Um, that that was the climate. So obviously, when I started my career in 1991, it wasn't that different. And you were looking at this, and obviously, I didn't, I wasn't able to articulate it yet because I was you know 22, 23 years old. I was just getting started. Well, can I interrupt you just for one second? Like, do you remember in 1988 having thoughts like? Where's Dr. J? Where's Magic? Where's the Heritage? Or was that not something that was even part of your lexicon? I mean, I, mean, I wasn't – back then, I had no desire to write about sports. I wanted to write about politics. I wanted to be, I wanted to be William Raspberry. I wanted to be on the, on the op-ed page of the Washington Post. That's where I was. So I wasn't really thinking about bringing sports along with it. I think to me where – where this notion of a heritage really began to reform was when I got back into sports in 92, 93, and I went down to spring training in uh, Scottsdale. And you see the black players. That was Dusty Baker's first year as manager of the Giants, first year Barry Bonds was there. And I remember we walked, you know, you walk into the clubhouse, and there's Dusty, black manager, with Bobby Bonds, black coach, with Wendell Kim, Asian coach over in third base with black superstar Barry Bonds, and then you had black role players. And it feels like, that feels like the relic walking into a baseball clubhouse and feeling such a black presence. You know, Willie McGee was on the exercise, you know, he's on the bike working out, and he, you know, brought me over and said hello and introduced himself to me. I didn't introduce myself mm. to him. And it was his way of saying, hey, you know, you're part of this too, and we need you to tell our story. There was a link there. And that was really, for me, I think the first time when you recognized, of course it came from baseball, where you you recognized that there was a lineage that goes all the way back. And then to answer your question, yeah, to answer your question, absolutely. You felt like as the 90s and even in the 2000s, as things went on, that 
the players were too rich to care that there was that even though you had this heritage of players looking out for you and talking to you in a way about the game that you know that that they didn't talk about with other players you didn't see the deeds you didn't see these guys get out there on Rodney King you didn't see them get out there on on different issues on Diallo or on Luima or anything like that they were quiet now there's no re- there's no reason to think that that, that they were going to return that's right that's right now now uh, people who listen to this podcast know that I have my own perspective that I've said for last several years about why I think this thing you call the heritage, why it's been reborn, and I always point out the that it, you know it starts by happening off the field with the Black Lives Matter movement and social media and connecting these images of dead black bodies, black children, and how that's affected athletes. You have you write about that in this book, but you also have this very interesting thesis that some of this is also about the ramping up of nationalism and patriotism after 9-11 and how it makes these contradictions all the more acute. And I think that's an indispensable observation. Can you speak about how post-9-11 indirectly helped spark or re-spark the heritage? Well, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that um, it starts in the streets. There's no question about that. And I think that the one of the things that I might have downplayed inadvertently is the is that linkage to the streets. It's the social media part of it. It's the video part of it. It's the peer pressure part of it. Or, you know, you talk to players. Mm-hmm. I think Kenny Stills was talking about this, about, hey, the, you know, these are kids of their generation, 25, 26, 27-year-olds, out there blocking traffic. And who am I to sit on the sidelines while this is taking place? Very important part. And when you compare it or when you when you juxtapose what's taking place on the field pre-game. It just doesn't jibe with the experience of a lot of these young people. On the one hand, how can you have law enforcement appreciation day when when protesters are blocking the airport at the same time in in, in Los Angeles? And how do you how do you square how do you square those two images? And and on top of that, not only how do you square those two images, but how do you how do you reconcile the fact that every time you see a video of a young black person being shot unarmed, whether it's a Tamir Rice or, or although Trevon Martin wasn't on video, but when you see those stories and the immediate reflex of the public is to tell you to shut your mouth, as a competitive person, that's one thing. As a ball player... <laughs> where your entire your your entire identity is based on competition, you're not going to take that line down. You're gonna you're gonna stand up and you're gonna fight a little bit. And one of the other things that happens too that I really didn't get a chance to get into because it was you know it's a, you know there's two different three different books you could have written out of that was the amount of peer pressure that a lot of the players were getting at home. I remember talking with Edwin Jackson who was pitching for the Nationals and he was telling me about how the you know, at home you know whether it's his wife whether it's his family. Hey, you're a professional athlete. You've got a platform. How come we're not hearing from you? This stuff took place at home, and and the players sort of felt, hey, I cannot hide behind the tinted glass of my Escalade anymore. Yeah, uh, and and it's this idea too that uh, of the the white public that you know it's the Jackie Robinson line, like you have it made. What are you complaining about? Because they're looking at a checkbook 
and not looking at the black experience independent of wealth or the communities where so many of these players come from in the first place. Yeah, or or even more importantly to me, the odds. I think that that's the thing that drives me crazy about all of this. And when we talk about this is the, no matter what the parameters are, we're talking about a very small number of people. Mm-hmm. And and when you take the money into it, obviously you add the money that's involved in politics. You look at the people who have money who now become president. You look at all of these things, and it's the black athlete is the one who's not allowed to have money and speak. Everybody else, when you get money, it allows you the chance to speak. People listen to the ones with the money. So what do we do with the black athlete with money? We tell them to shut up and play. We mm-hmm. tell them to stick to sports. We tell them they can't talk. And and that to me was a a real interesting sort of parallel to the post nine eleven pageantry at the park was that we want players to talk we don't want players to talk about things we don't want them to talk about exactly like there is no problem with political athletes in nineteen forty nine political black athletes in nineteen forty nine when Jackie Robinson is speaking out against Paul Robeson. Well, that's where the heritage started. The heritage started, when you think about this, it started with with Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis and Jackie Robinson all being asked by the white public to do anything but stick to sports. They right. asked them to go out and promote the American interest going into World War II and in the in the 36 Olympics and to and and the House Un-American Activities Committee. They asked the black athletes to speak. And the argument that I make, I think it's in Chapter 2, is there is a price to that. And the price of that is that this is now going to be a two-way street. It's not a one-way street because Jackie Robinson very cleverly, as we talk about that denouncing of Paul Robeson in that testimony, also talked about police brutality and also talked about things that African Americans were being denied in terms of rights. And, and I remember him saying, whether or not it was the communists saying it or whoever else said it, it doesn't make it any, le- any less true. That was sort of a, a hint that Jackie was coming for you. And I believe uh, that members of, of HUAC walked out as he was saying that those parts of it. So it's like once he said his Robeson piece, they were like, OK, done. We got you. We're good. We got our headline. Oh, you have something to say about racism in the South? Well, be well, son. And then that was it. Yeah. So let's get back to the heritage here. Um, you know, when, when you read the works of Harry Edwards, like, you know, like Revolt of the Black Athlete and his writings in the late 60s, the Dr. Harry Edwards. Um, and even like when you see some of the quotes from Muhammad Ali, when Muhammad Ali speaks about Jack Johnson and Joe Lewis, they are very conscious that they are part of a heritage. They are very conscious about the history of the black athlete and what it says about the black athlete in the 1960s. Now, you spoke to a lot of today's players in doing this book. Are the players today conscious of that history, conscious that they are building on that history, or is it more something that they're either unaware of or discovering as they're becoming political? Or a third category, which I would submit to you, which is completely aware but also completely aware that being black is bad for business. And I think where the athlete is today, I refer to them as the peacemakers. I think that's the the title of the epilogue that ends the book, in that you're right, the Ali's, the Jim Brown's, the Jackie's, these people were very much uncomplicated, the Paul Robeson's, very uncomplicated 
in their advocacy for black people or the advocacy of black people and also very much aware that there was a lineage that goes back to the beginning and that they were part of that even if it didn't necessarily have a name i think the reason why the book is called the heritage is because it was a word that they just kept bringing up even though it wasn't a title it wasn't something that they all refer to they, that word just kept coming up in every interview today's athlete belongs to the world Today's athlete is an individual corporation. They own pieces of companies. They own sports teams. They will own things now as we go forward. And because of that, their job is actually a bit more complicated. Their job is not to advocate specifically for black people. It's to bridge the peace. It's to make sure everybody gets along, to have LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony and Chris Paul and Dwayne Wade all stand up there and advocate for black people, but also advocate for peace. Very, mm-hmm. very different dynamic than than the Ali attitude of, I'm here for my people. And I think that that is, you talk about when we first started this interview, that's the real legacy of that 80s, 90s, O.J. Michael Tiger sort of end of the heritage. It was that advocating suddenly was the, it was as dirty a word as union. In terms of being able to stand up for people, nobody wanted to hear it. Yeah, and so you're saying that like you have these athletes today who call for peace instead of justice, and but but that in and of itself can also open up space for athletes to call for justice. An example I would give is I think LeBron James has been a figure who's openly, except for his um, back and forth with Trump, who's openly called for peace instead of justice. But with the mere fact that LeBron is being political at all creates space for other athletes to say, hey, LeBron's being political. Why can't I speak my mind, too? Would you, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the biggest things when we talk about what happened to the heritage. What happened after 1970? What happened after the, you had these wonderful moments from, say, 1965, 66, uh, actually, 64, if you go 64 to, to 71, 72, you had these unbelievable moments from whether it was the NBA threatened boycott of the All-Star Game in 64 to the AFL boycott in 65 to the, the Olympics in 68 to Kareem not going to Kurt Flood to the Black 14 to the Syracuse 8. Take your pick during that incredible eight-year period. Then you go almost 50 years without anything. And mm-hmm. what's the difference? The difference is is that the guy who runs the show is the guy with the biggest number of zeros on his paycheck. And so you have to go all the way back to a guy like Ali or Kareem to to point out a player who was arguably the best athlete or the, the most recognizable athlete in America who was willing to take this on as part of their identity, who was willing to say, I, this is a part of me. Everybody else ran from it. And... When a LeBron James comes out and says, hey, no, 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 not only am I not going to run from it, but I'm going to advertise it, then absolutely it opens up space and it gives other players, lesser players who don't have that sort of protection, it gives them license to say, yeah, this is part of my identity too and I'm paying attention and we're in a very special moment in time and I'm not afraid. But without Mm -hmm. that superstar, you're pretty vulnerable. Now, one of the people you spoke to in terms of putting this book together was Colin Kaepernick. Uh, given that he's had conversations with such few people, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask your impression of him. 
I very much enjoyed Colin Kaepernick. I thought that um, I was very grateful for the time that he gave me. I was also very, very happy that he was who I thought he would be in terms of the all of the information swirling around about what he was and what his motivations were and what he, he was all about. Colin Kaepernick is having an awakening. When I looked at Colin Kaepernick when we first met, I believe it was July 29th in New York, what I saw from him I saw, I looked in a mirror, I saw myself. The problem was, I saw myself when I was a teenager. He's having the moment about what this world is and about all this history and all these things that you're learning. He's learning it as a professional athlete approaching 30. And this is the stuff that we learned in African American studies class when you went to college, when you went, you know, when Bobby Seale was one of our instructors, Malefa Asante at Temple University, they were our instructors back then. Sonia Sanchez was there. And so what Kaepernick is going through is the stuff that we went through when you're on the college campus. He was busy winning football games for Nevada when when we were, you know, learning what this thing was all about. And so there was an authenticity about him that I completely appreciated it. He was connecting dots that you're not supposed to connect. When we talk about uh, being peacemakers, he's not a peacemaker. He's here for black people. He's here for poor people. He's pan-African. He's all of those things that everybody told us you weren't allowed to be anymore. And and what, what I'm going to get the phraseology wrong. It's something I think I heard you say. He doesn't accede or assume the humanity of the people he views as his oppressors, which is a very dangerous thing to do in this country when you're black and you talk about race. If you don't make it like, oh, well, there are bad white people, but... Well, exactly. Not all cops are bad, and we're not the... You know, it's not all... It's not everybody. It's it's like, listen, there's a culture here. And we fight this in our writing all the time when it comes to when it comes to making these blanket statements and then of course the editors get all upset and they say well it's not everybody so then they soften the language and they weaken it and dilute it by saying some some not all a few and they try to add different qualifications to it which you know turn whole milk into skim milk and Mm -hmm. but i believe in symbolic language we all know what we're talking about we're talking about the overarching culture obviously we're not talking about every single individual and, and we're talking systemically, and we're talking system. We're talking systemically. We're talking about systems, and the people who say not all police. It's like what they're doing is sort of gaslighting an argument about systemic police violence. No, exactly. They're under. They're undermining what you're trying to say by trying to sound reasonable. It's a. It's a. It's a very sinister game. You can see if you can see through it, though it doesn't have at nearly as much power. But I think that you know, when you're looking at someone like Colin, where he's at right now is an incredibly dangerous place, and it's evidenced by the fact that he's not working. He's not, he's not willing to be that peacemaker to, to negotiate with the people who kept him from working. Um, he's not willing to do a lot of those different negotiations that you have to – that the public is expecting of you – because now they view you as compromised. Now you're you're in the celebrity class. You're a multimillionaire. So therefore, you're supposed to compromise. You're not supposed to be in the street. You're not supposed to be arm in arm with Freddie Gray. You know, you don't do that anymore. And and I think that um, 
the fact that he views it so differently really does one it connects him to this this old lineage that we used to think may have been in the dustbin of history, but it also makes him much much more compelling and a much stronger person. Yeah, that's real talk. Well, this is going to be the first of many interviews that we do. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you just this one last question because in reading the book, you know, I'm one of the sports stories of this year unquestionably was Jamel Hill, your colleague, getting suspended from ESPN and this whole drama about what ESPN personalities, journalists, writers, what are they allowed to talk about at social media and how are they being held to a higher standard than the president of the United States? And I would just be remiss if I did not ask you um, if you had concerns given some of what you are talking about in this book, because as someone who's read this book, it's like you are taking no shorts. You are, as you say in the introduction, giving no fucks. And it's a pull. The book is a polemic. It is a polemic that we desperately need. It's also a polemic that I can't imagine will make the folks in Bristol too happy. Have they seen drafts? How are you negotiating this? No, no. We'll see when it comes out. Uh, I spoke with with John Skipper when he was there. I interviewed him several times for the book. He knew, you know, he knew what was coming. Um, we'll see. We'll see how they respond to it. And they were completely aware that I was doing the book, and they knew what the premise of it was, and they knew exactly where we were in, in time. And, and um, it's I, I think what's interesting about it, Dave, just to really start to break it down, is there's no way out. There's no way out for anybody. And I think where we are in this moment of t- in time is we may think we can smooth these things over. We may think we can normalize them. We think we can we can – we can isolate people who use inflammatory language, but we can't. We can't. Everybody's got to deal with this head-on and how you deal with it and, the, and the, the responses that you produce from it are going to define you. And my attitude was, if you're going to take this on, then you take it on all the way and you, you say what you have to say. It's right in front of us. It's motivating all of us. We're all being affected by it. And... And let's face it, I, I, I'm hoping that what I did, I did in a responsible manner that can all be fact-checked and everything else. But at the same time, I'm not doing my job if I don't write what I see. That's why they hired me. Yeah, right on. And last question, can't help but ask you this, given um, LeVar Ball and him putting forward this idea of an alternative to the NCAA and its uh, cartel thievery. Uh, I'm not going to ask what you think about LeVar Ball and this idea. People can go to your Twitter feed if they're curious about that. I do want to ask you this. Do you see LeVar Ball as part of the heritage? That's a great question. Um, right now I'd have to say no because there's because one of the questions in the book, I think in Chapter 9 we start getting into it, is this, this notion of authenticity. Does everybody get to join the heritage just by doing just by saying stuff? Do you, do you get to join the heritage by wearing an I Can't Breathe t-shirt? I think the standard's a little higher. Or by just being in a Nike commercial. Exactly. That, just that, by, that being, you know, by wearing yeah. a T-shirt that says equality. Um, I actually think it's the opposite. I think the more you talk, the more you get pulled away from the heritage. Because this, this thing with a capital H comes with a cost. And if you're looking at Colin Kaepernick, paid a price. Ali, paid a price. Jackie, paid a price. Robeson, paid a price. You know, this thing is expensive, and 
just because you're willing to talk or have Nike do a commercial or, or, or do something that might sound a little bit woke, that's not going to cut it. Wow. Howard Bryant, thank you so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Hey, what music are you listening to right now to get you through? We're gonna, we always ask people that. At this very second? I'm listening hey, to life. you. You're the you're no, the in life. in my ear right now. No, in um, life, what's either chilling you out or getting you out there to you know burn some calories? Well, I have to say, um, I have to say, musically, uh, when I'm on book project, I go almost exclusively into into Coltrane mode. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been listening to the Africa Brass Sessions which is mm. legendary John Coltrane on Impulse. Mm. Um, Songs of the Underground Railroad, just obviously the song that always gets you going when you feel like hitting some chapters. Not exactly the contemporary music that you might be expecting, but that's where I go when I need to find uh, some paragraphs. You have no idea how much feedback we get, though, from people who on like stuff like that, and they say, "Hey, now I'm writing to Underground Railroad, and it's helping me so much." Like, seriously, so that that's good stuff, Howard. Thank you so much. You got it. You know what, Dave? Though I got to tell you, I can't write to words. I can't write to vocals. It's distracting. No, Everything I listen to is almost completely instrumental when I write. No, me neither. If, if I'm writing to Run DMC before I know it, I'm saying, I've got 10,000 women who offer me favors. My face is a thousand lipstick flavors. I just, I'm done. It sort of changes everything. It does. It's a different thesis. All right, Howard, thank you so much, my friend. All right, my pleasure. Thank you, Dave. That was Howard Bryant. We'll be back right after this. <laughs> And now I've got some choice words about the year 2017. So look, for over a decade, I've written a column in December looking back on the year in sports and politics. And for most of these annual assessments, the stories were comprised of little nuggets overlooked by the mainstream sports media. Things that generally did not make a blip outside a small circle of those of us interested in this collision of sports and politics. Let's face it, the number of people that were interested that NBA bust Adam Morrison was a Ralph Nader supporter or whether an Egyptian soccer player was asking people to sympathize with Gaza was not exactly large. Even athletes who made statements against war during the Bush years or spoke about those left behind after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans were not exactly discussed with breathless analysis. They were an afterthought, except for the kind of writing that me and a couple other people have been doing for some time. But then, over the last several years, the dream deferred of athletes being denied the ability to speak their minds exploded. Where this fuse was lit can be subject to debate, but I think the flame arose when the Miami Heat, led by stars LeBron James and Dwayne Wade, used social media and posed with their hoods on in 2012 to spread solidarity with the family of the murdered Trayvon Martin. Then, as black and some white athletes started to leverage their platforms to speak out about those losing their lives at the hands of police, this wildfire intensified. Finally, in 2016, as Colin Kaepernick took a stand by taking that knee, the sports world firmly became a public square of political dissent. 
I want to read to you what I wrote one year ago in assessing 2016. Remember, this is the assessment from one year ago. This is what I wrote. It is widely accepted that 2016 has been the most vile year in memory, a train wreck contained inside the world's biggest dumpster fire. But amid the swirl of venom, political excrement, and personal tears, it is worth savoring the fact that in the world of sports, tragedy has not been the defining characteristic. On the field, the sports world has been an oasis of uplifting escape, and off the field, allegedly apolitical players have charted a high-profile path of resistance that our normal political channels have failed miserably to articulate. End quote. Now let's go to 2017, because now we've reached another place. The fight has spread beyond racial issues as the Me Too movement has become a part of the sports rhetoric of resistance, but this has also been the year of the backlash. Open, ugly racism aimed at athletes who recognize that in historical moments such as this one, they needed to do more than just shut up and play. In comparing activist athletes from the past to the present, I've always found it useful, this line from Mark Twain, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. This is a helpful framework in comparing the experiences of Muhammad Ali to Kaepernick, or the trials of Jackie Robinson getting shunned in the Brooklyn Dodgers locker room to what LGBTQ athletes face today in their locker rooms. It allows us to examine the fight for equal pay in tennis, led 50 years ago by Billie Jean King, and compare it to the efforts of Venus Williams. Their experiences and circumstances are extremely different, but there are common points of struggle, regardless of their era. In a word, rhyming. But 2017 saw a different kind of rhyming. It saw the rhyming of the backlash. It saw how black athletes are, as in the past, threatened, policed, slandered, and attacked for daring to use their platforms to say something about the world. Donald Trump, Fox News, and their neo-Nazi-infused right-wing echo chamber has spent a year frothing with rabid barbarism in order to shut these athletes down. Whether it was Trump using vulgarity and cursing athletes who were protesting racism during the anthem and calling for them to be fired, or his pulling of an unaccepted invitation to the Golden State Warriors, or his bizarre feud with LeVar Ball, Trump has focused on black athletes as high-profile symbols of people to hate, and his echo chamber has followed suit. Trump and his dwindling, aging army go after black athletes for the same reason they defended Confederate monuments and supported Roy Moore in Alabama, because it's in their blood. But their motivations are more obvious than just instinctual racism or playing to a base. Athletes have been the hub of anti-racist discussion over the last year, and this threatens Trump's racial agenda of division and suppression. It is also drawn from a very old playbook. Jack Johnson was derided in his day for refusing to be docile when becoming the first black heavyweight champion. Jackie Robinson, when he embraced the civil rights movement, was attacked for not knowing his place as an athlete who had it made. Muhammad Ali was torn to pieces for daring to say my real enemy is here and not in Vietnam. Tommy Smith and John Carlos were called black-skinned stormtroopers by Brent Musburger for raising their fists for human rights on the Olympic medal stands. All were not only attacked by the press, but by their governments, who put the police and later the FBI on their tails, making sure that they paid a public price for daring to use their platforms for reasons other than patriotism or commerce. Yet they persevered, and decades later we laud them as heroes while their detractors are remembered as intolerant, vile bigots, if they're remembered at all. One lesson 
is that amid backlash is that solidarity is essential and that if we can remain strong, courage is contagious. As Brianna Stewart said after she went public with her story of abuse and joined the Me Too movement, I want to read you Brianna's words, which were said to us here at the Edge of Sports podcast. She said, Hearing Michaela Maroney, that's Olympic gymnast Michaela Maroney's story of sexual abuse, and all the voices joining in Me Too, dating back to nonprofit organizer Tarana Burke, who really started it in 1997 and didn't get a lot of credit, gave me confidence. Even the momentum you feel around NFL players organizing and forcing ownership to the table. Then there was my team, the Seattle Storm, formally supporting Planned Parenthood. It's inspiring to see other athletes using their voices. We are existing in what seems like a political pressure cooker right now. But I would like to believe that it's worth being engaged because on the other side of all this, if we work hard enough, there is something better for everyone. I want to know that I stood up when it was hard because that's when it really counts. End quote. This is the most important lesson out of 2017 for activist athletes from high school to the pros. The platform is there, and these struggles need to be linked in order to survive the backlashes to come. The fact that these actions are upsetting all the right people only proves the importance of the message. I don't have the slightest idea what 2018 will bring. Only that the blaze that these athlete activists maintained in 2017 will be felt for decades. It's now a subterranean fire. They cannot put it out. We'll be back in just a moment, but first, a quick word from The Nation magazine. Look, we need alternative media right now. We need to get news out into people's hands. The Nation magazine has been doing it for 150 years, and we ain't stopping. Can't stop, won't stop. Support The Nation magazine. It is more needed than ever. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. That's thenation.com slash subscribe. Read my stuff. Read John Nichols. Read Collier Meyerson. I mean, we're talking some amazing, amazing writers doing the best work on the political left. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And now it's time for the part of the show we call the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. This week, the Just Stand Up Award. Stand up! It goes again to Michaela Maroney, uh, gold medal winning U.S. gymnast. Last Wednesday, Michaela Maroney broke her non-disclosure agreement, which was a very, very risky thing to do to say that USA Gymnastics actually tried to silence her nearly a year ago by making her sign an NDA as part of a financial settlement she needed to pay for psychological treatment from her experience by abusive, quote-unquote, doctors who worked for USA Gymnastics. Maroney's attorney, John Manley, called the confidentiality agreement hypocritical, immoral, and in this case, illegal. Um, And this is what Manley told NBC News. Those responsible for this should be removed from the Olympic movement and USA Gymnastics. If they would treat one of their most famous athletes in the world like this, how poorly would they treat a recreational gymnast abused by her coach? Damn. So more power to you, Michaela Maroney, for going public with this. And I'll tell you this. If more people challenge these non-disclosure agreements, they protect so many people. I'm here in Washington, D.C. right now. You could take down some of Congress, the Senate, and even this predator in the White House if these NDAs uh, went public. And resisting them is very important. I give uh, no judgments on people who don't because for women, you know, it's like you, you open yourself up to horrific legal, legal ramifications when you do. But the more people who can break this wall of silence, the better. 
Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Goes to Jerry Richardson, who? 82-year-old owner of the Carolina Panthers, who within three seconds was like uh, accused of being a sexual predator and then announced he was selling his team. It was literally like that Eddie Murphy sketch where it's like, get out. Boom. Just like that. Jerry Richardson, you're out. And you know what? The idea that the Me Too movement could take down one of the most conservative, and in Jerry Richardson's case, one of the most racial, if not racist, owners in sports. I mean, that just tells you something in and of itself about the power of this movement in terms of holding horrible people accountable for their actions. Goodbye, Jerry Richardson. Sit your ass down. Yeah, he's going to get $2 billion plus dollars for it. And yeah, a lot of that money is going to be because of public funding that's refurbed the stadium in Carolina. But at the same time, man, just clear the air. Get out. We'll deal with the tax issues <laughs> again. Um, but let's make sure Jerry Richardson is out the door. Jerry Richardson, sit your ass down. And now a quick word about the Start Making Sense podcast. If you like Edge of Sports, you got to check out Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine. It's progressive news without the boring parts. Every week, host John Wiener takes a step back from the daily media deluge to talk to some really smart people. People like Naomi Klein on climate change or Keith Ellison on a strategy for the Democratic Party. And he's even had me on the show to talk about sports and politics. Catch a new episode of Start Making Sense every Thursday at thenation.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now the part of the show this week we call Kaepernick Watch, where we look at the latest comings and goings of Colin Kaepernick. Last week we talked about Colin Kaepernick visiting people in Rikers Island. Beautiful story. This week we have the story of Sean Combs, a.k.a. Puff Daddy, a.k.a. P. Diddy, a.k.a. Diddy, a.k.a. Love... I think he's called himself now, or Love Diddy, something like that. Um, just once, I wish he would just say, a.k.a. Ralph. I am now Ralph Combs. But Sean Combs, he says he wants to buy the Carolina Panthers. Now, why would this be a big deal? The NFL has never had a black owner. My goodness. And when Sean Combs said he wanted to buy it, guess what happened? Steph Curry said he wanted to come in on that. And then guess what happened? Colin Kaepernick said he wanted in on that. So imagine that. Imagine how if this, this will, by the way, this will never happen. The NFL is run by 31 of the most conservative billionaires on earth. They just got their first non-white owner a couple years ago, Shahid Khan of the Jacksonville Jaguars, a Pakistani billionaire with horrific history of labor abuses. Um, so that's their idea of progressive ownership. But the idea of Puff, Cap, and Steph owning a team, it's just a beautiful thought. And my goodness, what a last chapter that would be of the Colin Kaepernick saga. You go from being, from feeling owned to being an owner. Boom, shalaklak, boom. Well, that's all we have for this week on the Edge of Sports podcast. Yo, this is going to be our last show of 2017. So straight up shout outs to everybody who makes this show happen. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, happy Kwanzaa to my producer, David Tigabu. Same thing to Daniel Baker. Same thing to all the patrons out there. Remember, please go to www.patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and you could support the Edge of Sports podcast. And guess what? We appreciate it so much, and that'll be your Christmas present to us or your holiday present to us. And we'll appreciate it, and we'll shout you out when we get to the new year. 
Thank you so much to all our listeners. Thank you so much to The Nation Magazine for supporting this podcast, definitely. Thank you, Peter Rothberg, for believing in this podcast over at The Nation. And thank you, Frank Reynolds and Emily Douglas as well. And Katrina Vandenhuvel, of course, who runs The Nation Magazine and has given all of her, uh, and has given all of her support to this project. We are out of here. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace.